Would you turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? We are coming closer and closer toward the end, and we want to look at three verses today, verses 16, 17, and 18. Knowing the will of God is one of the most important pursuits of any true Christian. After a period of time, usually shortly after a person comes to Christ, they get consumed with what is the will of God for their life. The hang-up we have, however, is that we have no problem trusting God for His eternal will. We're confident that God's will is to take us to heaven, to spend eternity with Him forever. That's no problem. We can hang with that. Our problem is, in between this point and that point that we hang out with Him in heaven, what is God's will for our lives? But we ought to realize that if God is able to make sure that we get to heaven, that He should be able to make sure we get the right husband or wife or job or whatever else it is that we're seeking God for. If God is able to pull off eternity, He's able to pull off the temporary. Finding the will of God to some Christians has become a neurotic pursuit almost. We have mystified it as if the will of God is difficult to find out what it is. There are some who try the open and point method. That is, they have their quiet time, they're in the morning, they open up their Bible, and whatever the Scripture opens up to and their finger lands on, they go, oh, wow, that must be the will of God for my life. Of course, that could be dangerous, couldn't it? Come across the Scripture and Judas hung himself. You're going to have a tough time rightly applying that one. Uh, some try to wait in silence to hear an audible voice, or they want to see a sign from God. That's what I want, a visible sign. Show me what you want. Write it out for me. Spell it out for me so I can do it. I heard of a farmer who wanted to become an evangelist. One day working out in his field after a long, hot day, he was sitting under a tree. He looked up in the sky and he saw what he thought in, in his mind, the formation of the clouds in two letters, P-C. He quickly sold his farm and went into the full-time ministry, concluding that the words P-C meant preach Christ. He went out as an evangelist, and he was a miserable evangelist. And after one of his messages, a guy came up, a friend of his, and put his arm around him and said, don't you think those uh, letters meant plant corn rather than preach Christ? As you can see in verse 16, 17, 18, actually all the way down to verse 22, there's a series of one-liners, short little verses. All of them are commands. Yet in those one-liners encompasses the will of God for your life in specific areas that deal with your outlook on life, your inner person. You can know the will of God. We read it right here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks for this, and the word this refers to the three verses, three things before it, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Then it continues after that with more one-liners. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 
Actually, all of these things are the will of God because they're given in commands by Paul the Apostle. It's, most of them are in present uh, active imperatives. Do this. It's a commandment. Or stop doing this. The first three commands is what we're going to deal with today. This is the will of God for daily life. Next week we'll look at the will of God for a discerning life as it talks about what comes into us, what we hear. But this week it's the attitude that comes out from us. And the will of God for our life could be encompassed in these three little sayings. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. You notice right off the bat that the will of God is an inside job. We often look at the will of God as something outside. What action does God want me to perform? Rather than what attitude does God want me to have? And the will of God begins with the attitudes before it ever touches the actions. Jesus made this clear. He said, You have heard that it was said that you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. It begins in the heart. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Fine. I say if you look at a woman to lust after her, you're already an adulterer. The will of God begins with the inward attitude before it touches the outward actions. And by the way, notice that these things can be done anywhere by anyone at any time. This is not the will of God for a few, but for all believers. I don't know why it is, but sometimes we think that whatever God's will is for my life, it surely must be something different than what I'm doing now. And it must be very difficult. Whatever God's will is, it must be a, a hard thing to pull off. There's an old picture about a kitchen scene painted by a Dutch artist that shows an angel in the midst of a kitchen dressed in all of its garb and so forth with pots and pans and forks and knives in the angel's hands. And the message the artist wanted to get across is that in ordinary life, whatever your task, you can perform the will of God. And if you do it with the right attitude, it is just like the ministry of angels unto the Lord. So we want to look at these three verses this morning. This is what God wants from us. And as we do, again, we apply these things to us individually. And we see that God wants us, first of all, to always rejoice. Verse 16, rejoice always. Or if you have an old King Jimmy, it says, rejoice evermore. And actually, the adverb precedes the verb in the original language. It would be translated literally, always rejoice or evermore rejoice and unceasingly pray and in everything give thanks for the sake of emphasis. So this is the will of God. God wants us to always rejoice. Joy is one of the elements that is missing in the world in general. Now I know that the world promises lots of joy and lots of happiness, but one thing that you notice that marks an unbeliever from a believer is the consistent lack of purpose and joy. But joy is the one thing the gospel produces. It's in the book of Acts constantly, and they received the Lord and they were filled with joy. The Philippian jailer, it says, his life was filled with joy when he had come to believe in God. It is the byproduct of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, the world is getting gloomier. Ann Landers, I've told you, gets 10,000 letters 
a week from gloomy people, fearful people, burdened people. She said the predominant feature is a burdening fear of the future. Over 60 Americans a day take their own lives. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among teenagers. Contrast that with this commandment, rejoice evermore or always. Now this is not a pat on the back. It's not a don't worry, be happy attitude. It's interesting, that's sort of the world's slogan. Don't worry, be happy, but they don't show it. The idea here is a settled peace, an inward joy, not because of your surroundings or circumstances, but often in spite of them, produced by the gospel. The gospel produces joy, and yet I can hear some people saying, hey, wait a minute, I see people come forward at your altar calls, and I see them with tears in their eyes sometimes. They don't look too happy, but understand that those are tears of joy. Those are tears of conviction and contrition as they realize, I'm not worthy, but I've just realized that God loves me. And in the depth of my being, I've never been so joyful to know that my sins can be forgiven. Well, we've got a lot to be joyful for. Our sins have been forgiven. We're on our way to heaven. And we should act like citizens of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Literally, oh, how happy are those who mourn. When you mourn for the right reason, it produces a fullness of joy. Notice the twist on this command. When should we do it? Always. Always rejoice. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. He's not referring to a constant emotional electric kind of a high or excitement that we are to have. That is both unrealistic and dangerous. To think that you could always be hyped all the time, amped in every occasion. Your body was never designed to take a constant inflow of adrenaline. You couldn't handle it. The idea here doesn't refer to that constant emotional high, but to an inner satisfaction that comes when we trust God with our future. Listen to Paul's own testimony. In 2 Corinthians, he said, In great endurance, in troubles, in hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights and hunger. Now that's Paul's experience at that point. But he says, Dying, yet we live on. Beaten, yet we're not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Always rejoicing. So it's not... I'm always excited. Boy, these beatings feel great. I love it. I'm hungry. I'm starving. The idea is that in the midst of that even, there is an inward joy that doesn't depend upon the outward, the happenings. It is often in spite of them because I've learned to trust God in the midst of them. Rejoice always. Why should we do it? Well, first of all, because it's a commandment, present active imperative. Always rejoice. Isn't that interesting that you would give a command like this to somebody? Now, I've got a command for you. Be happy. But it's more than that. Why is there a command to always rejoice? I can only conclude that this kind of joy is a choice. It is not an automatic response. In fact, our automatic response to much of life would be anything other than joy. 
But I can only conclude that because there are these commands, that this kind of rejoicing is the choice to respond to certain situations in a godly way. It doesn't come automatically. You have to learn it. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. It wasn't automatic. No, you have to learn that kind of response system over a period of time. And uh, I like to use Paul as an example because he practiced what he preached. He wrote to the Philippians from a Roman prison. When he wrote the letter of Philippians, he uses the word rejoice 12 times in the letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. You look at his circumstances and you think either this guy's a nut or he's learned a secret that we ought to learn. He's in a Roman prison. He's been beaten. He's in stocks. He's been persecuted, hounded from city to city. And yet he says rejoice in the Lord always. In your life and in my life, there are thieves that rob our joy. Or there are at least challenges that challenge our joy. Circumstances do. You probably are a wonderful person when things go your way. You probably are so easy to live with and get along with. As long as everything is going your way, you're just, it's awesome to be around. But what about when things don't go your way? If you are depending upon circumstances to extract your joy out of, you will be often a miserable person because so many of life's circumstances are beyond your control. They just happen. They can rob you of your joy. They can challenge that attitude. People can steal your joy. I know some who think, you know, life would be great if it just weren't for people. Things they do. Things they say, those negative comments. You can be up here just floating and somebody can say some little edgy comment and poof, just deflates you or angers you. Or the way some people drive. Uh, that's my weak point. I can just be in the spirit. Get me out on the highway and I'll tell you, it is a challenge to me. I think, why are they going so slow in the left lane? Things can also rob you of your joy. Material things. Because they're deceptive. They promise you what they never give you. The advertisers say, buy this thing and you will have happiness and joy. And you buy it. And it lasts for, oh, 10, 12 minutes. Then you find a flaw in it. And you think, gosh, this thing costs too much. Or I never really produced what it said it would. All of these things either rob or challenge rejoicing always. We ought to do it because it's a command. We ought to do it also because it's a great advertisement. An authentically joyful Christian is one of the greatest advertisements for the gospel ever to be found. People look at that life and they think, man, there's just a, a lightness about that person. A permeating joy that I sense when I'm around that person. Nothing is more infectious than that. On the contrary, probably nothing is a worse advertisement than that gloomy pessimist who says he's a Christian. In fact, it'd be good if a lot of those people wouldn't admit to many unbelievers that they're Christians. Because they're always on a downer, always in the gloom, always pessimistic. These are the people you only hear from when something happens they don't like. 
Don't like that song you sang today at church. Don't like what the usher said to me as I was coming in. Don't like that new radio format. Never hear from them until it's something they don't like. You know the kind. You can almost count that when you're around them. Oh, here it comes. When they speak, it's like observing an autopsy. I heard about a man and his wife. They were going across the country, and they stopped at a service station, a full-service service station. Very rare to find one of those. You know where they wash your windows and stuff. Pulled up, and the man said, uh, Hey, listen, I want you to wash my windows. Do a good job. They're filthy. So the attendant complied and washed his windows, and after he was done, the man who was driving the car said, Hey, come here. Do it again. Look it. They're still filthy. The guy didn't say a word. He complied. He washed his windows. After the second time, the old man got out and he said, Don't you know how to wash windows? They're still filthy dirty. Just then his wife reached across, grabbed the old guy's glasses, and cleaned them with the tissue, put them back on his head, and behold, clean windshields. It's amazing how your own outlook can color the world around you. Now, I said that Paul practiced what he preached. Boy, did he. At another time, he was in a Philippian jail. He was in stocks. He had just been beaten. Stripes were on his back, and he was bleeding. And the text says something unusual. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas started singing hymns to God. Evidently, God liked it. An earthquake occurred. I always like to picture God tapping his foot a little too hard with the beat. <laughs> The door swung open, but that Philippian jailer was also impressed. He came up to Paul and Silas, impressed with that kind of joy, and he said, What must I do to be saved? He observed within Paul and Silas an attitude of rejoicing always that never left him. Even Charles Spurgeon used to train his young seminary students, telling them that when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let it be irradiated by a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. But when you speak of hell, your ordinary face will do. <laughs> Spurgeon was very used to saying things like this. In fact, people in his congregation used to chide him because he used too much humor. One elderly woman rebuked him one Sunday morning. He said, you know, you use too much levity. Too many funny things come out of your mouth. You're too humorous. He said, Dear lady, if you only knew how much I held back, you'd give me a break. <laughs> Listen, the Bible says a merry heart is good medicine. We need to laugh more. Does joy permeate your home? You know, physicians have studied the results of laughter upon the human body and found that laughter has profound and sometimes instantaneous effects upon the welfare of your body, physically. That it produces the alleviation of tension. It reduces stress. It helps strengthen tissues. It even exercises the vital organs. Even forced laughter helps your outlook. Does your home ring with laughter and joy? Or are you the kind where you're always looking at the faults? You've sunk to the level of just seeing the faults, the bad things. 
or is there joy? What is the will of God for me? Rejoice. Always. Secondly, verse 17, God wants us to pray unceasingly. Folks, it's no coincidence that prayer and joy are linked together. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Why? Because our outlook in life is often determined by our uplook to God. If you are in the habit of turning everything over to God in prayer, your outlook will be a lot different than when you don't. The kind of people who don't have the habit of turning things over to the Lord in prayer are burned out Christians very often. Pray unceasingly. The only way to have a heart full of joy is to have a heart free of burdens, crushing burdens. The only way to have a heart free of burdens is to get rid of them. And the best way to do that is to pray. That's why Peter said, casting all our cares upon him because he cares for you. Now sometimes this is exactly where our problem lies. We go through the motions of prayer, we go through the ritual, but really that's just it. We do it because, well, we should do it. But we don't really mean it. We don't leave the burden there. Our prayers are often, Lord, I'm burdened. Please take this. Please work with it. It's yours. But then we come back to him a little bit later on. God, seen that burden I gave you a little while ago? I'd like it back. You haven't been doing anything with it. You need to get something done. You better do it yourself. You haven't been working hard enough, quick enough. I want it back now. Thank you. I'll work on it myself. That was Sarah's problem. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Sarah thought, hey, I've been waiting way too long. Abraham, go take Hagar, my handmaid, and have a baby through her. Let's help God out a little bit on this. Giving the burden over to God, taking it right back. You're familiar with the words of that one song. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. How much pain, how much lack of peace, because there's not that unceasing prayer. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean that 24 hours a day we mutter things under our breath? I don't picture Paul like that, do you? Walking around, don't talk, can't sleep. No, it's not what it means. In fact, um, one of our big problems, I think, is that we often talk too much and listen too little when it comes to prayer. Jesus himself said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The idea isn't don't pray, but pray with the right heart. It's, it's, it's possible to put your mind on hold and your mouth on automatic and just say those same old dusty phrases over and over again without giving them thought. But the word here, pray without ceasing, speaks about something constantly recurring, not constantly occurring. It could be translated, pray at every season, or pray on a regular basis, or make it a priority in your life to pray in every occasion. In other words, Sunday is not the only day to pray. 
or before meals is not the only time to pray. Oh, praise the Lord, pass those potatoes. Or going to bed at night isn't the only time to pray. But on every single occasion, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells a story with the same point in mind. Luke chapter 18. It's a parable of a wicked judge and a persistent nagging widow. And Jesus gives us this story, not to say that God is like that kind of a judge, but in contrast to that judge, God is willing to give, but we ought to keep asking. Chapter 18, verse 1, Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart or literally get discouraged. There was, a certain, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, yet I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Interesting example. Here's an old guy who is very ungiving, very hard. He's the tough kind of a judge. He's the kind who wouldn't give in. But here's this nagging woman who keeps knocking on his door and it just drives him nuts. He goes, all right. I just want to get rid of her, so I'll do it. Now, Jesus isn't saying God is like that. He's using it as a contrast. If you have a heavenly father who loves you, if an unjust judge is going to give a persistent widow this, then you ought to pray and not lose heart. You ought to keep at it. For he says, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God, or shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Pray without ceasing. Pray on every occasion. Why? Well, it's a command, but also... There is a devil. That's why. That's a good enough reason, actually. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, be on, the, on your guard, on the lookout, for your adversary, the devil, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may gobble up or devour. That's why we ought to pray. Joshua was conned by the Gibeonites because he failed to pray about the situation. David did pray when he went out to the Philistines, but what if he had not prayed? and he went out presumptuously, or he went out at the wrong time, and it wasn't directed by God, it would have meant his defeat. And so prayer is our secret weapon. As the old saying goes, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. I don't care how weak you are. You get on your knees and deliver that burden over to God, and that shakes the devil up. Because now... It's not resting on your shoulders. You've transferred the burden over to God's shoulders. And he can carry it a lot easier than you can. And then verse 18. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does God want for you now? To rejoice always on every occasion to pray. Let that be a mode of operation in your life. And in everything give thanks. Now, interestingly enough, those that have researched praying patterns among Americans have found that Thanksgiving is pretty low on the list. 
A major news magazine recently studied the praying habits of Americans, and they said, quote, the majority of people we interviewed pray, doing so in a rather superficial manner. Prayers were usually prayers of petition rather than prayers of thanksgiving, intercession, or seeking forgiveness. And listen to this conclusion. God, for some, is simply viewed as a divine Santa Claus. Now, in contrast to that, in the Bible, thanksgiving is as common as prayer itself. In the Old Testament, God said, You will bring offerings unto the Lord. You'll bring a sin offering. You'll bring a drink offering. You'll bring a burnt offering. One of the offerings they were to bring was a thanks offering, an offering of thanksgiving. In the Psalms, you have noticed that these spontaneous outbursts of praise occur regularly in thanksgiving. Oh, thanks be unto the Lord. Render thanks to God. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And forget not all of His benefits is often found in the Psalms. In fact, there's a whole section called Thanksgiving Psalms unto the Lord. How does Paul open up almost every letter in the New Testament? He says, I, I thank God for you. I'm writing to you. I thank God every time I remember you in almost every letter. And to the Colossians, he said very much the same thing. He said, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, whatever you say, it should be filled and surrounded with a thankful heart unto the Lord. A word on the words in everything. In everything give thanks. It doesn't say for everything. That's an important distinction. If the command was give God thanks for everything, it would be an absurd commandment. And there's a big difference between giving God thanks for everything and giving God thanks in everything. It should be translated in connection with everything give thanks. There are certain things I don't thank God for. I don't say, God, thank you for sin. Thank you for the Holocaust. Thank you for those who have died in Bosnia. Yet in the midst of any situation, in whatever I find myself into, in the midst of that, I can still render thanks unto the Lord. In everything is different than for everything. The idea is to have a grateful spirit. Why? Because God's in charge. Do you believe Romans 8.28? If you do, then you'll be able to be a thankful person. Romans 8.28, as you know, says, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. God weaves all circumstances in our life, good and bad, for our good. He can arrange them that way. Almost 400 years ago, the pilgrims made seven times more graves for their dead than homes for the living. They had it rough. And yet they managed to eke out a day in their calendar that they thought was incumbent upon every person called Thanksgiving to give God thanks for what he had given to them. It's not easy to do that. It's easier to complain. But it doesn't say, in everything complain. Though we might by our actions translate it that way. Just remember this. When you complain, half of those who listen to you don't care. Tragic, but true. You might think, but everybody is really concerned. Half of your audience, and the other half might just be glad you finally got what's coming to you. 
You'd be surprised at the attitudes of people. But the Bible says we are to bear with those who are weak, to rejoice with those that rejoice, and to weep with those that weep. There are times when we don't feel like giving God thanks. You look around your situation, you go, now wait a minute, I can't find one thing, one speck of goodness in this situation. I can't God give God thanks for it. No, but you can give God thanks in it. Lord, I'm still alive. Or even if I die, I'll be in heaven. I mean, if you think of all your bases, they're covered. Well, why should I give God thanks? Because He says so. That's all the reason you need. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, disregard everything I've just said. This entire message is actually for those who are in Christ. It doesn't make any sense if you're out of Christ. Rejoice always. Pray about everything. Give God thanks. Forget it. But if you're in Christ, it makes perfect sense. Corrie ten Boom, who was a Dutch woman, her and her sister, her family, in the Holocaust, and they had hid many of the Jews during that time, were caught and put in a concentration camp. A movie is made called The Hiding Place. Some of you have seen it. Her and her sister Betsy were placed from one concentration camp into another because they were hiding the Jews. They were persecuted. They said that when they were taken to Ravensbrück, which they said was the worst concentration camp they'd ever seen, they were taken into the barracks that were obviously overcrowded and flea-infested. They said it was miserable. It was the worst thing we had ever seen. The next morning, Betsy said, I got up and my text that I was reading from was the text we're reading from today. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And she found her sister. She said, Corey, I've discovered the will of God for us in this place. We need to consistently pray. We need to rejoice. And we need to thank God. Corey said, I'm not going to thank God for this. I'm not going to thank God in the midst of this. This is a flea-infested barrack. Corey, the Bible says we must give God thanks. Finally, she gave in. Always wondering for months why they were able to have Bible studies and prayer meetings without interruption by the guards. They found out months later the guards wouldn't dare set foot in because it was so flea-infested. They had the freedom to pray, to minister to the prisoners, to read their Bible. And they discovered, ooh, in everything give thanks. The best training for you to know the will of God begins here. With the inner you, with your outlook and your attitude of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. That's where it begins, knowing the will of God. You cover those bases, and the outward stuff will be a lot easier. It'll come naturally to you. The will of God doesn't have to be too mystical, too weird. You don't have to read weird little things into every circumstance in life. Like the guy who was on a diet, very serious about his diet, decided that when he drove to work, he'd drive around the area where the pastry shop was and not even go near that bakery. But he came in one morning to work with a huge coffee cake. Everybody at work folded their hands like, you turkey, you cheated, you shouldn't have that thing. And as he brought it, he goes, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're thinking, but this is a special coffee cake. You see, I was driving accidentally past this bakery, and I noticed this thing in the window. 
And I wonder, it's not by coincidence that this thing's in the window. I wonder if it's the will of God for me to have that coffee cake. And so I prayed. And I said, God, if it's your will that I buy this coffee cake, let me find a parking place right in the front of that bakery. Sure enough, after the eighth time around, there it was, right there in the middle. You'd be surprised the things I have heard as conclusions to the will of God for people's lives that aren't really far off the track of that story. doesn't have to be that mystical. Choose to rejoice when you feel like life is crushing you. Make a choice to unburden your shoulders and place those burdens upon the Lord. And don't go back and ask Him for them again. Leave them there. And then stop and say, Lord, I don't understand, but I give you thanks. Forget not all of his benefits. 